Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. As we begin, I have a question for you. Is fear a good thing or a bad thing? A good thing. There's the answer I like. Both. It can be a good thing, right? It can be a bad thing. It's a trick question. What is a good fear? Fear of the Lord. We are commanded to fear the Lord. What I think it's one of the Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. It says it both, I think. But not in a run and hide kind of way, but in a reverential awe, knowing who God is, and those kind of things could cause, should cause us to fear the Lord. What other kinds of fear are good? Fire. Fear of fire. Yeah, the ones that keep you from harm. You think of fear of fire keeps you from running into a burning building. or Actually, some people actually do run in. That's called courage. That would be the opposite of fear. Fear of drowning keeps you from jumping off a boat in the middle of the ocean and not knowing how to swim. Fear of heights might keep you back away from the edge a little bit. So those kind of fears are good. But when you look at fear as a topic in the Bible, if you look up all the passages on fear in the Bible, outside of the fear of the Lord, the Bible primarily talks about fear in a negative way. In fact, if you look at how many times it says, do not fear or fear not, I think it's in the Bible around 300 times, somebody said. So that's not something typically that we would think of as being a good thing when when the Lord and others are telling us do not fear there's evidently a negative thing about it I think of phobias when I think of fear and you think of people that are really abnormally afraid of something that would be a fear that is exaggerated what kind of phobias are there? claustrophobia confined spaces spiders heights darkness I mean, certain kinds of animals. There's all kinds of fears. And as I was reading up on this a little bit at the beginning, it it made a distinction about exaggerated fears or phobias because they alter the way you live. If you have an extraordinary fear of something, like maybe I'm uncomfortable flying, and especially when it goes through turbulence, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, right? But if that fear causes you to miss your daughter's wedding because you won't get on a plane and get there, then then you probably have a phobia. Or if you have a fear of getting on an elevator, they make you a little uncomfortable. But if you have a really great job offer, but you won't get on the 10th floor, you won't take it because it's on the 10th floor and you can't get on an elevator, then that, that fear goes abnormally in the wrong direction. But as I started thinking about that, as all types of fears, almost all fears in some ways alter the way we live. I thought about the fact that some Christians have a fear of witnessing and that therefore they don't share the gospel with people because of that fear. I thought about someone who might have the fear of running out of money and that might cause them to not be as charitable as they ought to be. I thought of somebody that might have a fear of commitment, might keep them from a good relationship the fear of 
change, might keep us from all different kinds of blessings that we might have. So as we think about fear, we see that outside of the fear of the Lord, it's hardly ever a good thing outside of... And those things like fear of fire, fear of drowning, those could almost be classified not really as fears in the sense of really afraid, but as respect and, and understanding the danger that comes from that and having a respect for it. But again, the Bible mostly talks about fear in a negative way. So as I thought about that, I thought about, I went back through the Bible and started looking up all different kinds of passages on fear. And I came really away with kind of two results of what fear, the results of fear. One is that fear keeps you from doing something that God would want you to do. And the other would be that the fear causes you to do Nothing. One would either change you and you would do something wrong, or the other one would cause you to not do anything at all. And I went, I went, there was a lot of examples. One would be the talents. You remember the story of the talents where the three men were given three different amounts of coins and they were told to do something with them. And the first one, you know, had a larger amount, and the next one had a little bit, and then the, the third one got one talent. What did he do with it? He buried it. Why? He said he was afraid. So he did nothing. He did nothing. And then I thought about, Peter, um, when he denied the Lord three times, and he did that out of what? Fear. And he did something he shouldn't have done. So one did nothing and one did something he shouldn't have done. And most of them could be boiled down into that. And fear basically then becomes a lack of trust or faith in the Lord if you boil it all down. And it causes you different results depending on how you react to that fear. Well, today we're going to look at the of chapter in Isaiah, chapter 41, if you want to be turning there. And it's a fear on, it's a verse, a chapter, and we're going to stream it down to a verse on fear. Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to look at the first ten verses, but our the context of the lesson for our studies purposes will be basically primarily on verse 10. So as you're turning there, let me give you a little context. Isaiah, as you probably know, was a prophet who prophesied in the period of the divided kingdom. You had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And when Isaiah was there prophesying in the southern kingdom, he has contemporaries, I believe it was Amos and Hosea, were prophesying in the northern kingdom to Israel. Anybody know what Isaiah's name was or what it meant? It meant salvation. Isaiah's name meant salvation and that's what the topic of his book is about. It's about salvation or deliverance. That's the theme of his book. He prophesies about several different deliverances. He prophesied about the deliverance of Judah from the Assyrians. He prophesied about the nation, deliverance of the nation from the Babylonians. He, promised, he prophesied about the future deliverance of the Jews from the worldwide dispersion. And he prophesied about the deliverance of creation from the bondage of sin. And then all of God's children, he prophesied about the deliverance of sinners from judgment. And just briefly, just to give you kind of a synopsis of the beginning of the book, in chapter 28 through 35, Isaiah has been prophesying about the future impending Assyrian invasion of both Israel and Judah. And when that happens, he tells them that the ten tribes of the north are going to be destroyed and assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. That's actually the beginning of the Samaritans. That's how they came about was during that period. And then in the southern kingdom in Judah, they are going to be destroyed, but they're not going to be taken captive. The Lord delivers them from captivity. 
And then, then he goes into chapters 36 and 39 telling about Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah was, for the most part, a godly king. And he actually helped deliver the southern kingdom from being taken captive by the Assyrians. And he tell, but then he goes into basically cooperating a little bit with the Babylonians. And it talks about his sinfulness in that. So these chapters then are a bridge between the Assyrian and the emphasis on Assyria and the emphasis on Babylonian. Then we come to the, chap- the section we're going to be dealing with in chapter 40 through 66. It's talking about the future deliverance and return of the Jewish remnants from the Babylonian captivity. And the Jewish rabbis called this section of Scripture, they call it the Book of Consolation, which is a very good title, but it's very accurate because it, addressed, it was addressed originally to the Jewish remnants and exiles as they returned to their land. It was an impoverished land. The temple was destroyed. They were going to have to rebuild it. But these chapters have brought a lot of comfort and hope to God's people throughout the ages, not just specifically to those of that time. So Isaiah is prophesying about something that's going to happen. When we pick up in chapter 41, he's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. And he's preaching mainly to a group of refugees that are getting about to be released from captivity and they're going to be distressed, they're going to be discouraged because they don't have any homelands to go to, they don't have any homes, the temple's been destroyed. And so these were very difficult times. So with that in context, I want to read Isaiah 41 verses 1 through 10. And Isaiah prophesies to them and he says, Coastlands... Listen to me in silence and let the people gain new strength. Let them come forward and let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword. As the wind-driven chaff with his bow, he pursues them passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am He. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelterer, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. He says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, if you read through that, you're probably thinking, oh, what's some of that talking about? In order to really understand Isaiah's prophecy, you have to do more than just a cursory reading of it. But for sake of time, let me make a few things simple. He begins by talking to the coastlands. And some versions say the islands. And that's a popular term used throughout Isaiah's prophecy. And he always means basically areas remote from Jerusalem, from the God's people. He's saying the outskirts when he says the coastlands and the islands. That's what he's talking about. Now, 
as he does this, he's foretelling of a time of captivity in Babylon. He's going on past the captivity and he's telling of a time of deliverance. And he tells them who it is that will deliver it. Look again at verse 2. He asks the question, who aroused the one from the east? He's talking about a future deliverer that's going to come from the east. He says he delivers up nations and subdues kings. In verse 5, he says the coastlands are afraid. That's to all the people, all the remote people everywhere around. He says the ends of the earth tremble. Everybody's scared. Everyone is afraid of this coming leader. They're so afraid. Verse 6 and 7, when it's talking about each one helping his neighbor, he says the craftsman encourages smelter. He smooths metal with hammer, encourages him who beats the anvil. You know what he's talking about? Metal and soldering. and He's talking about making idols. The people come together to make idols. That's where they're basically focusing their energy on overcoming this fear is they're going to call up on the idols to help deliver them. So who is this king that the Lord is going to use to free his people? We're not told. Somebody said it. Cyrus, you're right. You were told that later if you have to go on and read. Turn over to chapter 44, verse 28. 44, verse 28, he answers that question if you continued reading ahead. It says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire, and he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Cyrus is the king of Persia. It's Persia that's going to come in and, re- and basically release them from captivity from the Babylonians. Now, is Cyrus a godly king? No. I think that's an interesting point, again, that God uses whoever he chooses to use. He doesn't always use Christians to do his, his work. He's going to use an ungodly king. Look on down at verse chapter 45, the first couple of verses. It says... Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. Isaiah is telling who and how God is going to deliver them. Later in his prophecy, you'll see him talk about the coming Messiah that's going to ultimately deliver them. But for now, he's referring to Cyrus, an ungodly king he's going to use to deliver his people. So this is a very uncertain time. People don't know what to do or where to turn. And so in verse 10, we come to that well-known verse of Scripture that God gives them, as well as us, he gives us some important direction in turbulent times. Let me read verse 10 again because this is where we're going to spend our time. He said, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So what we're going to see in these verses is we're going to see two commands, and then we're going to see five pillars or supports for these commands. What's the first command? Do not fear. Literally, fear not. Do not fear. This is emphatic. This is something that they are told not to do. And we're told multiple times in scriptures, the disciples were told, we're told, fear not. So that makes it a command, right? So when we do it, what's that mean? That means we're sinning. When we are afraid, in a sense of being fearful, then we are sinning. And I say that because many people pass over that and they just think that's normal. It's okay to be afraid. 
But according to the Bible, when we have enemies in front of us, turbulent times, hard things in front of us, and we are fearful, that is a command to fear not. In context here, God is saying to the Israelites, everyone else around you is afraid. The armies are approaching. Cyrus is approaching with, with the Persian army. But I'm telling you, do not be afraid. And then he goes on to give a second command. He says what? My version says, do not anxiously look about you. Some versions say, do not be dismayed. The word actually is kind of closer probably to dismayed. What is dismayed or anxiously look about you? What does that imply? No hope. No hope. You're hopeless. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. It gives this idea of someone, you know, just kind of fearfully looking from side to side with no real direction, nowhere to go, not sure what to do, a feeling of hopelessness. And he says, don't do that. And then he says, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Those are the commands. But then he gives us, he doesn't leave us there. He gives us five reasons why we don't have to do that. And the first one is God's presence. He says, do not fear for what? I am with you. The first pillar that holds up this truth that we don't have to fear and that the Israelites didn't have to fear is that God is right there with them. God is standing alongside them. The first thing I thought of when I read this was God's attribute of what? Omniscience. God is everywhere. He's right there beside them. The word actually means ever near. He's ever near. God is ever near. And as I thought about that and as I read and studied on God's omniscience, the fact that He is ever present, ever near, everywhere, it's mind-boggling. I mean, it really is. Scientists now with these crazy telescopes and things they have, they can look, how do they measure distance in space? Light years. They can look millions of light years away and God is there. And he's right beside us as well. David expresses this truth in Psalm 139 when he said in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, what? You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, what? Behold, I am there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. There is nowhere that God is not. That really blows my mind when I think about that. He's everywhere at one time. And it's because we think of things in what? We think of things in matter and space and time and density. But He is spirit. God is spirit. And His spirit can be everywhere at the same time. In fact, it's more than just being everywhere. Think of it this way, that God is not contained, but God contains. Everything is in God. He is not in the world. The world is in Him. And that, again, that blows my mind. But Scripture backs that up. Second Chronicles 2.6 says, The heaven of heavens cannot contain Him. Acts 17.28 says, For in Him we live and move and have our being. It's a hard thing to grasp, but we cannot think of God as being in the world, but the world is in Him. That makes Him ever-present, ever-near. So, we say that, we understand that to our limited ability, but then again, don't you hear people say, don't you even hear Scripture say, at times, God being far from someone, or someone being far from God. Sometimes we feel, we say things like, God is far from me. What do we mean? It's not geographical, is it? That's relational. That's in a relational distance 
because we are not close to Him. But God never changes. God is always there. He may not be close to someone in the sense of that relationship distance because He might be relationally distant from Him. And we were all that away before we actually came to know the Lord. We were all separated. When we were separated, we were God was still right next to us. But relationally, we had that distance. That's why Jesus said when He left the world and sat down at the right hand of the Father, remember what He said? He said, Behold, I am with you always. He could say that because He was God and He was Spirit again. When He left, He knew that He was going back to His being of of Spirit and He could be everywhere. So, I think it's important to remember that when we think about that. God is saying to the Israelites, Do not be afraid for I am with you. I am really there. I'm near. I'm beside you. Now there's an assumption in this that's obvious. What difference does it make that God is beside you in difficult times? I mean, if there's a really difficult struggle ahead, a seemingly impossible task that no man can endure or could get through without help, why is it important that he says God is there? What if he said Dennis was with you? That make you everything all right? Then pick on you, Dennis. What if he said Mike was with you? Would you have the same feelings that God is with you? No. I mean, it might make us some better that somebody there is helping. But from a human standpoint, we can't do the things that God does. So the fact that God is present alone is not... You have to make an assumption that God is there and is able to do something to affect that situation. So that's important because when you think about it, what is it about God's presence that makes it not be able to fear. It's because you know His sovereignty. You know His power. You know His goodness. You know His wisdom. You know His love. So it's not the same if one of us was with you. It would be God, the Creator, the Sustainer of the universe is with you. That's the first pillar that supports this truth that we don't have to be afraid. The second one is, do not be dismayed for what? I am your God. God is on their side. He's telling the Israelites, I am not the God of the Assyrians. I'm not the God of the Babylonians. I'm not the God of Cyrus or the Persians. I am your God. And when I thought of that, I thought I had this great idea about the word I am, and I looked it up, but it wasn't the same one, because that's what I immediately thought of the words I am, that when Moses asked, what, Lord, what's your name? And he said, what? I am. I am. And I thought of that, and I looked up the word. It's not the same, but... It was important for me because I've thought about that. This was, they knew this was the ancestors of those people. This was the friends of Abraham, our text tells us. These people knew the history. This was the same God that led them out of Egypt. The same God that helped them take over the promised land. So these people here that he's telling this to, they knew the history of that. This was the same God that was doing this and was making their promises for them. But he says to them, do not be dismayed. I think the emphasis probably should be like this. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. And he says that to us. He is our God. It's personal with God. He's a personal God and he is on our side. In Second Chronicles, we see King Hezekiah repeating the same words in verse 7 of chapter 32, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Syria or the horde that is with him. And then he goes on to say, Because the one with us is greater than the one with him. 
With Him is only the arm of the flesh, but with us, the Lord our God is with us to help us to fight our battles. So throughout the Bible, we're reminded that God is our God, that He is for us. I love Romans chapter 8. I've told you many times that's my favorite chapter in the Bible. Verse 31 of Romans 8 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's not a question that expects an answer. That's a rhetorical question. If the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God is for us, if He's on our side, who or what can prevail against us? And the answer is nothing or no one. I was trying to think of an example. It's ludicrous to think of, but can you think of a pro football team coming here and playing Lakeside Christian School? The little flag. You laugh because that's ridiculous. I thought about my UK Wildcats playing the Clearwater High School basketball team. Those would be ludicrous examples of a team that's overwhelmingly more powerful and there's no hope for the other team. That is the way it should be as we think about God being on our side. How could we lose if God is on our side? So, as you think about that, why is it that sometimes we are fearless and other times we shrink and cower? It's not isolated to us. Do you remember the Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the garden? Do you remember what happened to Peter? Peter had a courage, didn't he? What did he do? He jumped up and this year had the the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests with all with a Roman cohort, the verses there in John say that they came with torches and weapons. And Peter alone stands up and sloshes off the, I can't remember who it was, the son of the high priest, I think it was. He slashed off his ear. What courage that took. Now, how come Peter had the courage to do that? He was near his God. God was there with him. And it's not just that. I mean, yes, it is that. That is the answer. But there is, there is even more to the story. If you go over to John 18 and read the verses, you will find that as they walked into the garden with Judas and this surrounding Roman army soldiers there, they were all there. They came up. Jesus, seeing what was happening, got up, went to them and said, Who is it that you seek? And they said, Jesus. And he said, What? I am he. What happened? They all fell back to the ground. Then they got back up and said it again. They probably said it in a quieter voice. (laughs) Who do you seek? He said, Jesus. (laughs) And (laughs) Peter then jumps up and swipes off the ear. Now think about that. That's a little different situation, isn't it? He had just seen the power of Christ knock them to the ground by the spoken word. And then Peter had courage because the Lord was with him. He knew what the power of the Lord could do if it was on his side. But we also know it wasn't long after that. Hours later, Peter denied him. Not once, not twice, but three times. Now what changed? Was the Lord not next to him in a sense? He wasn't physically close to him, but he was actually within sight. We even know that Peter could see him from where he was. Peter changed, didn't he? It wasn't that the Lord changed. It wasn't that His presence changed. Peter's view of the Lord and what he could do and where he was at, it was Peter's faith and trust that was different. It wasn't the Lord's. I propose to you, it's not that God is with us sometimes and other times He's not. No, God is ever-present. He's ever with us. He's always on our side. It's sometimes that we are relationally close to Him and trust and faith is where it should be and other times it's not. 
And God told this Jewish remnant here in Isaiah, and He tells us that there's no reason to fear, there's no reason to dismay, for He is ever-present with us and He is on our side. And then He goes on to explain in more detail what that means. The third reason God says His children do not need to fear is that He will strengthen us. He says, Do not fear, I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. In the Old Testament times, we're reminded a lot of how God miraculously strengthened people. Can you think of some people that God strengthened to do some mighty tasks? David David and Goliath, obvious one there. Samson against the Philistines. Moses against the Pharaoh of Egypt. Daniel in the lion's den. And we could go on and on. I thought of Gideon, his 300 men against the 10,000s. Meshach, all kinds of examples. God doesn't necessarily work the same way today in as far as miraculously winning our battles, physical battles. So how do we apply this today? Are we going to win every battle? I can tell you one thing. We're going to win every battle the Lord wants to win. Every battle the Lord wants to win. The problem is we don't always know if we're going in line with God's will. And I know the ending. We're, we're going to win the ultimate battle. God's side is going to win the ultimate battle because I've read the end of the story. But sometimes it's not His will that we win in the way we think of winning. So we need to be strengthened not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. We need to be strengthened. And God does that. The context of these verses here is at least in part physical strengthening, but it's also more than that because these are exiles and refugees in a sense. He goes on beyond them just getting released by Cyrus. They now then have to migrate back to their homeland. They had no homes to go to. They have no temple, which is the lifeblood of their faith and the center of their lives. And they're they're discouraged and, and hopeless in that sense. And God doesn't just strengthen them physically. He's promising to strengthen them and help them to do all of that task that is before them. So as I was studying this, the question came to my my mind as to why God strengthens. Why does God do anything? I mean, there's a lot of different reasons. You could say He strengthened to protect them. He strengthened to encourage them. He strengthened them because He loved them. He strengthened them for all these different reasons. But ultimately, why does God do anything? For His glory. And I came across a verse in Romans 16. The very end of Romans 16. I'm going to turn there because I don't have it written down. Romans chapter 16 is the last chapter in that great book of Romans. And Paul, as he gives his benediction, in verses 25 through 27, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you, and that word for establish also can be rendered strengthen. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be what? Glory forever. And so he's writing, if you begin that big long sentence and ending, it says basically, to now to him is able to strengthen you, according to the gospel, to him be the glory. So here we see that God strengthens for His glory. And as I thought about this, I thought about the, some of the rulers and dictators and kings of the earth. Not just in history, but in recent times. 
You remember who used to be uh, the leader of Iraq? It was the notable Saddam Hussein. Think about him. Think about who's the leader of uh, North Korea, Kim Jong-un or something like that. How do people like that, they tend to want glory for themselves, right? How do they, do they strengthen their people no. to get their glory? They impoverish their people. They weaken their people. To them, they get glory by stepping on and squishing everyone else. And that's the exact opposite that our Lord does. Our Lord promises to strengthen us. And by doing that, He gets glory. Complete opposite of how the kings and the rulers of the world today would go about doing that. So how are we to be strong today? I was, as I was thinking about this, I thought about, you know, men and women, and I separated them, probably because of my counseling mindset. I'm always preparing counseling lessons in, the, in between doing these things. And I thought about this, and I thought about the verse in 1 Peter 3, 7 that says a woman is the weaker vessel. How does the world tell a woman to be strong today? By looking real sexy and good, pretty, and that's how you can get power? Be aggressive. Be aggressive get a good education. Those kind of things the world would say for that's how a woman is to be strong. What would the biblical view of the strength of a woman be? Proverbs 31 woman talks about her dignity and her character being dressed in those things is how a woman should be strong. And I thought about men, I thought about young men especially and how obsessed a lot of young men are about going to the gym and drinking their protein shakes and getting all muscular and strong and fit. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with taking care of your body, but most of us older men here can tell you that's a fleeting, passing thing, right? (laughs) It's not going to last. How does God want us, how does God want young men to be strong? I thought about the fact that A young man needs a strength to be the leader of his family, to be doing devotions for his family, to be the power to stand against temptation. It's amazing how many young men are involved in pornography today. You would just be flabbergasted to know, not just young men, old men too. So we need strength to be able to stand against things like that. We need the power to go to your knees in prayer, to press on in spite of obstacles This is the strength that our God provides. And He doesn't just provide strength. The fourth way He says in our verse, besides being with us, being present with us, being our God, providing us strength, He also says, Surely I will help you. Surely I will help you. I looked up the definition of help. Assist, give aid, make easier. doesn't say God will do it for you, does it? It says He will assist you, help you, render aid. But you have to do your part. There are a lot of scriptures that talk about God's help. There's one in Psalm 121 that says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Then He answers it. He says, My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Isaiah 64, 5, You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Psalm 118.13, I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. And there's many, many, many more verses. The Scripture's full of examples of the Lord helping us. Contrary to what some people would say. Some people would say that the Lord created everything, He sustains it all, but He stepped back. And now you have to work it out. That's what some people would view. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. He says that He will help you in your day-to-day life and living. I thought about ways that the Father helps us today. What are some of the ways He helps us? Gives us peace. Comfort. Comfort. Joy. Joy. Strength. Flies our needs. Faith. Think about the fruits of the Spirit. Those are all things that God does to help us and He does that through the Spirit. So one of the biggest ways He helps us is He gave us a helper, the Holy Spirit. He says, I go and when I go, I'm going to send to you a helper in the form of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the, those in the Old Testament, they had the Spirit of God would come and go. We have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Sometimes I think we take that for granted. One of the ways that God helps us that I've been dwelling on lately is He helps us by answering our prayers. God actually helps us by the way He answers our prayers. What's James say? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, what? Availeth much, accomplishes much. Sometimes I think we, especially in this Calvinistic mindset that God's going to do whatever He's going to do and whatever, but... The weird thing about that is God chooses to use us in accomplishing His will. And He does that many, many times by answering specifically our prayers. And you think about people that have been praying and praying and praying and nothing's ever happened and sometimes they get tired and they just quit. That's not biblical. You think about the woman in the Bible that kept going before the king, kept pleading with them. And God didn't say that was a bad thing. He said they said that was a good thing. Think about the man that went to his neighbor and knocked on the door in the middle of the night asking for some bread. And the guy said, I don't want to get out of the bed. Go away. He kept knocking until he got the answer. That doesn't mean that um, we just arbitrarily ask for anything. We examine. But when we think we're asking for a prayer that would be accordance to God's will, we don't give up. We keep pleading with our Lord. And I think when James, when he says the earnest prayer... That's what he's talking about. You know the difference of just praying at mealtime and just kind of generally praying versus praying earnestly for something. God knows the, the difference. And that earnest prayer is the one that many times gets answered. But sometimes we, we take that for granted, I think, in our own lives. So God helps us by giving us strength. He gives us peace, patience, all the fruits of the Spirit. One of the ways He helped me was giving me a helpmate, me and my wife. I mean, you could go on and on with the way the Lord has helped you. But then lastly, the fifth pillar that I see here is that God will uphold you. It says, surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When you think of somebody holding something up, you get the picture of something much stronger on the bottom, something weaker on top, right? Not the big strong thing on top of something weak holding it up. It's the other way around. And we don't have nothing stronger than the Lord. And He is the one who is promising to uphold them. Therefore, He is promising to uphold us. Again, it doesn't mean we'll never fall. It's not an unconditional promise that we will never suffer what we would say is defeat. But in the scheme of God's story for our lives, it won't affect the outcome. God's going to uphold us, and He's working a story out in every one of our lives, and He's going to see it through. And we need to take that, and that was what gives us the ability to not fear. It's not our money that upholds us. It's not our education that upholds us or our jobs. 
It's not our great personalities that uphold us. The only thing we all know intellectually that we're nothing. God is the one that upholds us. We have no real strength of our own. Many of you have probably done it. When I was a kid, I used to play the little card game, House of Cards, and you would build the, see how high you could build the deck of cards into a little house. You know how fragile that was? I knew how fragile it was because I would always kind of cough at the wrong time to knock my brothers down. So that's that picture of somebody with no strong foundation, but with a false god, with an idol holding their faith up. We have the living God, the sustainer of the universe. He says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, there's a lot of different versions of what the righteous right hand is talking about. Some say this could be Jesus himself because he is at the right hand and we know that he is the righteousness that, that is imputed to us. Others think, when you think about the right hand, it's talking about power. It's talking about he's going to uphold you because I have the ultimate purified power in the universe. He's the only one that has that. Either way, there's a sense of divine protection that's insinuated here that accompanies not everyone, but who? God's special people. As you read through that, I'm so overtook with the I. Do not fear. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. God is the one doing this. Now, to conclude, this verse is to be directly applied to the discouraged and fearful Jewish refugees as they return from captivity in Babylon. That's the context of the verse. But the principle applies to us and to all of God's children today. If you look around the world that we live in today and are fearful, and I know some people are because I hear it, if you think we are losing ground on every front, if it seems like our country is slipping into the abyss, God's Word tells us, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. If your life is difficult, if your health is failing, if you have loved ones who are, have died or dying, if you have financial problems, if your children are wayward, your marriage is in trouble, your job is in jeopardy, whatever the difficult situation that faces you, God says, do not be fearful. Do not be dismayed. And He gives us these reasons why. And they're important reasons, but we don't need to forget them. When I think about this, I go again back to Romans 8. It's my favorite book of the Bible. And as I thought about that, I thought about the verse that says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor principalities, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor any other created, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That sums up why we should not be afraid. But even as I thought about that, I thought about, I didn't get it at first, but as I thought about this, the overwhelming nature of these verses, how they all came to talk about God, it said, when you think about God's presence, where, where does that put God? Next to you, right? When you think about God being our God, our Lord, that kind of picture, you picture God over us. When you think about God helping and strengthening you, I think about the Holy Spirit. That's God in us and then upholding Him underneath of you. God is next to you, over you, in you, under you. God is all around you. Why would you ever be afraid? Let's pray.
Father, thank You. Thank You for our time together this morning. Father, thank You for Your Word that gives us such hope. Father, in a world that sometimes seems crumbling around us, and Father, yet You tell us not to fear, just like You did the Israelites when they were overwhelmed. You tell us to not be overwhelmed, to not be dismayed, because You are with us and You are our God, and You will strengthen, help, and uphold us. May we take this promise literally. May we ingrain it into our hearts. May we not ever relationally fall away from you, but have you at the center of our lives, surrounded by your love. Perfect love casts out fear. You're the one that does it. May we draw upon your power and your strength by the faith in your son Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.